heavily, I'm a clown. Welcome back, guys, to another episode of the Bitcoin Echo Chamber, the show about Bitcoin and Bitcoin postage stamps. Today, episode 29, I got Bitcoin Lawyer back on the show. Him and I had such a great conversation last time. If you missed it, it was episode 27, I believe. We talked about Bitcoin and law. He's a practicing lawyer, and he gave some of his answers surrounding interesting questions involving Bitcoin and some of the legalities that many people run into and how the law applies to using Bitcoin and holding Bitcoin in various circumstances. And that episode got a lot of really interesting community feedback, especially on Twitter. So we wanted to, the first part of this episode, we kind of respond to a little bit of that uh, community response, answer some questions. If you guys had any other questions about that first conversation, hit us up on Twitter. We will gladly engage with you on that. But then Bitcoin Lawyer and I realized that we have a lot to talk about together when it comes to Bitcoin and economics. So he came back on for a part two, and that's what this episode is all about. Bear with me. I'm a little bit tired. I just had my first baby the other day, and it's a lot to take in all at once. So I'm going to keep this short, and let's get right to it. This episode of the Bitcoin Echo Chamber podcast is sponsored by WTFHappenedIn1971.com. The economics meme taking the world by storm where all of us are trying to find out the answer to what the heck happened in 1971. WTF 1971 also has a merch store now. You can find it at WTF-1971.creator-spring.com. I'll post a link to that down in the show notes if you want to check it out. Thanks for the support. Bitcoin Lawyer, welcome back to the show. How are you doing? Thank you, Colin. I'm doing very well. Well, I know both of us are really excited to have this chat today. We were we enjoyed talking together so much last time that we were both just kind of agreed, hey, we need to do this again and we need to do it again soon. And uh, it just worked out that uh, you and I were able to get together tonight and talk about some, some economics and some Bitcoin. Absolutely. And one more comment on our last podcast. We had a pretty interesting community response to the podcast and we had some tweet threads about, you know, what is the role of compliance with the law and and is there uh, room for civil disobedience and and I, I just wanted to let everybody know my position is that if somebody breaks the law then we then you know it is what it is and a lawyer is going to actually inform that person what what their best options are my position is that if we can avoid you know breaking laws and that's the best case scenario and as a lawyer when I counsel people that's that's my advice to them. But that was just a, a little uh, addendum to our last talk. talk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that makes sense. That seems like the smartest route to take because um, the, the biblical passage, I don't know how many of my listeners are, are uh, religious, but the biblical passage to be wise as serpents, but innocent as doves uh, comes to mind here. Very interesting. Or was that it, a, maybe, uh, did I say that Bible? backwards? Did I say that backwards? To be wise as sure. to be wise as serpents, but innocent as doves. I think I said it backwards. Yeah, that that is in the Bible. Mm-hmm. I believe it was the Apostle Paul who said that. But I just think mm-hmm. that that's a very wise, uh, very wise stance to take on just about anything in life. Absolutely, that's that is certainly the lawyer's stance as well. Well. Um, yeah, and, and if anyone else has any other questions uh, regarding the episode that the Bitcoin lawyer came on for the first one, and if you guys had any other questions about uh, 
any of the topics we covered, you know, feel free to tweet at us. We'll happily engage in those conversations. That's partially why I do the show. And I'm sure why, uh, sure. You know, the feedback can be a little bit addicting. You really like to get feedback on your ideas from people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Give, give call in feedback, everybody on the show. And this is so much fun. I mean, we just have, have fun talking about these things and, and learning and, uh, just discussing these things. So let us know if you have any questions or thoughts or comments. So let's get into it. I mean, it's been a pretty interesting day to, for me. I know when I was sitting at work, I was watching the commodities market. Uh, I saw uh, Brent went a little nuts today after the uh, there was an attack on a Saudi oil refinery. There's a lot of he said, she said about who's done it. Um, no, no official news yet. And, and who knows if we ever get the whole story, but uh, sure, causing a lot of commotion in the markets. Do you have any opinions on that event today? Yes, I think from a geopolitical point of view, it's important to point out that there's never going to be clarity surrounding uh, an attack, or it's always going to be he said, she said. And this is one of the problems with the tenant of mutually assured destruction as well, is that mutually assured destruction uh, depends on the idea that the attacker will be identifiable and there will be the ability to punish the attacker, but often in these geopolitical events, it's very messy. Mm. So the markets don't like uncertainty that should be priced in. You could see the uh, uncertainty premium dropped when Bolton was relieved from his duties as a, as an advisor to the president. And now you could see that the market once again, priced in not only the supply shock, but it also priced in the, uh, the uncertainty of Middle East conflict. And something interesting to share with you, I, I think that the, this weekend, the crude oil, uh, uh, the curve, the curve of crude oil contracts into the future, the curve was affected all the way until 2024. So wow. it's, it's kind of humbling to think that the markets are so much wiser than we are. And the markets are not perfect, but the markets have a much better idea of what's actually going on here and that they've they've estimated that this will have a multi-year impact on oil prices that's phenomenal mm-hmm. well do you do you think that the market is priced in enough of that of that risk well we were up about 15 percent today yeah you know i do have to wonder i mean um well before i before i answer that question um i i i, I think it's interesting the way incentives are are um, there's a conflict of incentive here just based on the fact that um, there's not a lot of money to be made uh, in a lot of markets right now, at least recently. And it's, it, isn't it ironic, you know, that all of a sudden this happens and, and we don't know the motivations behind uh, an incident like this behind the attack. They could be political, they could be religious, they could be personal, they could be financial. Um, and we don't really know like who was pulling the strings there and who was on the other side of that trade because that's what I'm always thinking about, right? Is was someone on the other side of this trade because a lot of money was made um, by speculators in the immediate hours following uh, this event. And and I, I do have to wonder about that. And, and then um, in the West, at least, there's a lot of uh, to answer your question, in the le- in the West, there's a lot of pushback against um, against tapping the vast amount of resources, natural resources that we have in the United States, like things like building pipelines and offshore um, drilling, and and all of the ways that we could potentially offset some of the uh, su- supply. Um, 
damage that could have been done by this oil refinery. And I don't, I'm not uh, super, super familiar with the oils market, but I don't, I don't know that uh, the U.S. actually receives a lot of the oil that comes out of the Middle East. I think that we mostly use sweet crude, um, light sweet crude, not the, uh, the Brent that's coming out of the Middle East, but I could be mistaken on that. I think you are correct. The, uh, the United States ha- is now producing about the amount of oil that we consume, which is a little over 10 million barrels a day. Just to give uh, the listeners an idea, about 5 million barrels a day of, of productivity was taken offline by the strikes this weekend. The strikes were uh, likely caused by cruise missiles, uh, supposedly from the territory of Iran. And that being said, we're the Brent crude, you're right, that's more of an international Middle East type oil, whereas the, the crude, sweet crude is more of a, a domestic United States oil. A lot of it's produced through fracking operations, which also produce a lot of natural gas. So we do have a, a, glut, a, you know, a nice supply of natural gas now, given the technological advancements that hydraulic fracking has allowed. And I think uh, something else that's interesting is that this really wasn't this was an asymmetric risk. I guess when you when you're betting on oil, you're right. A lot of people made money, and it would be economically irrational for the attackers to not bet uh, on on the price of oil going up before they did their attack. Right? Of course, the yeah. attack wasn't priced in. It wasn't. It wasn't. Uh, maybe it was predictable, but it wasn't. It wasn't news. It wasn't foreseeable. It was kind of a of a rogue event, it gets priced into the markets very quickly. But the asymmetric risk when you're betting on the price of oil is to the upside. You know, there, it's possible that we could have had uh, a news event where the price of oil falls 10% over the weekend, but it's much more likely that we will have a news event that drives up the price of oil 10% over the weekend. And as traders, we have to minimize our exposure to asymmetric risk. So that's why a lot of oil traders will not hold short positions into the weekend. They will close their shorts on Friday and they will reopen on Monday because they don't want to be exposed to that asymmetric risk. They want to be able to close out their positions into a liquid market if they need to at any time, number one. And number two, this does tie back to Bitcoin because with Bitcoin, the asymmetric price risks, there's a lot of asymmetric price risks to the upside as well. So in a sense, it, it, it does have uh, the features of, co- of a commodity in that regard. Hmm. Right. And, and I think about, you know, I, I have some um, close associates who uh, do a lot of commodities trading on leverage, you know, and I can only imagine having held a short position uh, through the weekend this weekend, you, you would have been liquidated. I mean, you would have lost everything. Um, and likewise, if you had been on the other end of that trade, you would have made a whole lot of money, like rivaled the likes of Bitcoin. Uh, and it is interesting too, you know, just looking at and and this is why i i really always try to stress people that are trying to learn markets and trying to learn how to like look at macro and identify trends you have to zoom out and you have to zoom out a lot um you know the the trend for the year on commodities pretty much across the board with the exception of gold is that everything had gone down considerably and and oil in particular was down i think at one point like 40 percent um so it just makes sense you know that that at some point, something's going to happen to release all of that tension. Um, and, and, you know, prices aren't guaranteed to go up and they're not guaranteed to go down. We can't predict demand um, and we can't predict these types of events. But it's important to zoom out and identify larger macro trends. That's really what macroeconomics is all about. Uh, mm-hmm. And as an Austrian, I know that you, uh, as an Austrian economist, we both uh, 
appreciate this and the listeners probably do as well, that the, the beautiful thing about a market is that an, a person who consumes oil, they didn't need to know what happened in the Middle East. The markets automatically priced that in and all the economic actors and the individual human action, they could all adjust their own consumption and supply accordingly according to that price. We don't have to go to a government bean counter and ask the government bean counter, well, how many barrels of oil am I allowed to consume today given the supply outage? No, the the knowledge problem is solved with the decentralized market. The speculators who are successful are compensated uh, for setting prices in a decentralized manner. And the people who do set prices more or who are able to anticipate uh, future supply and demand uh, more successfully are remunerated more uh, better by the markets, and th- those people will will have more market power in the future to to further establish prices. Oh yeah, that's a really good point. Um, that makes me think this is a really good example for people uh, who who might be confused about the role that speculation plays in meeting the needs of consumers. You know, you might look at a speculator as the evil corporate entity who is they were holding that warehouse full of barrels of oil so that they could sell it to you at a premium and extort you from your hard-earned wealth. Well, in a situation like this, you know, you're really grateful um, that 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 unnamed hypothetical company was holding that warehouse full of barrels of oil because in the event that uh, global supply gets disrupted, there's now some supply there to meet the demand, even if it's at a cost premium. That speculator speculated future demand correctly uh, and would be rewarded for it financially. Yes, and the, the speculators are supposed to, if, they, if they're doing their jobs very well, they're supposed to long at the bottom and short at the top. And by doing so, they smooth out the market cycle because that, that, is, uh, that is amazing that speculators will step in when there's blood in the streets and they will buy assets and they will step in when there's a euphoria and they will sell assets into that euphoria. That's, that's a, uh, that they do serve a vital role within the market. And that's not an easy thing to do. Uh, I've been trying to do that. I've been trying to teach myself how to do that for years. Uh, it's hard to buck trends and it's hard. And that's why it's so important to zoom out uh, because if you're paying attention to weekly charts or hourly charts or anything like that, you lose track of the big picture. Um, you lose track of the, the macro trends, if you will. Um, and, and then there's always things that you can't anticipate. Like, um, for example, Trump tweeting about uh, tapping the, the SPR, the Strategic Petroleum Reserves, which the United States has about a 30-day supply of um, petroleum for daily use in, in the United States. And you don't know, you know, the president can tap those reserves at any point in time. And, and as Donald Trump said he was doing uh, after this event took place, just to make sure that the, the markets retain some stability. Um, that's an unknown factor in a market. You never know when somebody like Donald Trump is going to step in with this huge supply of oil and enter into the market. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that's the beautiful thing about not having a centralized issuer of Bitcoin is that we could hmm. we could adjust for supply, you know, up to a hundred. Uh, actually, you know, as into in, indefinitely into the future, we know that the supply that will come online, and the market actors are better able to uh, adjust accordingly. Uh, I have a question for you, Colin. Do you engage in any technical analysis of these charts? No, I'm really not a big fan of technical analysis. I think it's kind of useless. I, th- I think to some degree it might have some value, um, but I think the vast majority of people who use it uh, are doing so in error. Mm. 
Do you have uh, opinions on how efficient markets are, efficient market hypothesis? I don't believe, well, so let me me explain. I think that knowledge is asymmetric. And I think um, that, that that's how money is made by based on asymmetric knowledge, because we can't predict demand in the future. We can only speculate on demand. And that's what makes a good speculator good and what makes a bad speculator bad. And that's what moves capital from the hands of poor speculators to the hands of good speculators. Uh, if efficient market hypothesis were totally accurate, um, then we wouldn't have markets. We wouldn't have need for speculation and we wouldn't have need for um, these people that come in and, and speculate on uh, times in times of crisis, like you said, blood in the streets and, and sell when the when the beer is flowing, if you would. Mm-hmm. And especially uh, since the people who believe in the efficient market hypothesis are, are relying, they're basically free riding off of the speculators who are pricing in this information and buying and selling uh, accordingly. So I, I've heard some people say that, well, you only need 5% of the trades to be an active management. And then the, the entire passive investment community can just free ride off of their research. And it's, it's kind of building in a lot of systemic risk into the legacy markets, which for, for all accounts have been getting more and more efficient over time. And I do think of efficiency on, on, in terms of a spectrum. I think that 10 is strong efficiency, which obviously does not exist in almost any market in, uh, today. And then there's also, uh, you know, semi-strong efficiency where, okay, maybe the insiders aren't buying and selling as, as heavy as we think, but everything that's public news is priced in. And then there's a weak form of, of efficiency, which says, sure, I mean, some things are kind of priced in, but really market, you know, the Bitcoin market's a good example of an inefficient market, right? It, it kind of, uh, it, the, there's not as many algorithmic traders and there haven't been as many decades to, to uh, further develop all of these, these fundamental analyses of which we could price in. But for me, it's, it's the movement towards passive investing is kind of scary. Do you have an opinion on that? Hmm, yeah, I'm, well, it's for sure the market is not, um, it, it, you know, in terms of liquidity with Bitcoin, we're talking about, about pennies compared to a lot of the other markets out there. Um, and and uh, the, the timepiece, I think, is really big. You know, I mean, Bitcoin hasn't been around for a long time. And I actually think Bitcoin is a really probably the best example that I, that I know of, uh, of an asymmetric uh, market or, or where asymmetric knowledge uh, is probably most prevalent. And I'm sure that there's other places and I don't know about them because that knowledge is asymmetric, but I've spent a lot of time studying Bitcoin and I understand how valuable uh, it is. Um, and I understand that it's very, very, very likely that in the future, the demand for it will be much higher than it is today. Um, and based on the fact that it has such a limited supply, um, I expect that I'll be the one meeting some of that demand. Oh, yes, hopefully so. And in addition to that, uh, the Bitcoin does have a, a corrective mechanism to the extent that the block subsidy, which is currently 12 and a half Bitcoin, it will fall to six and a quarter Bitcoin in May of 2020, that that subsidy valued in terms of dollars or whatever other local currency pair that you're trading against, that the, the subsidy will grow in terms of fiat when the price of Bitcoin is high and the subsidy will fall in terms of, of local currency when the price of Bitcoin is low. So it, it's almost as if there is a corrective mechanism built into the price 
Well, what's really beautiful about it is the the fact that it can't be printed. And that that is something that I, I would like to get into later because I think that all fiat monies will eventually be overprinted. It's it's inevitable. It, the the incentives are too powerful in that regard. Uh, real quick, can we go back to what you said? You asked me a question and I kind of mm-hmm. skipped over it. You asked me if I feared um, Bitcoin becoming a, a passive market. Is that what you asked? Oh, I was, uh, are you fearful of passive investing in general? But please comment on Bitcoin as, a, as well. Uh, can you explain what you mean when you say passive investing? Mm-hmm. More and more money is being allocated towards the index funds as a whole in the stock market. And because of that, we're, it's, it is a type of momentum strategy. For example, I think that the FANGs plus Microsoft account for over 30% of the ETF dubbed QQQ. And for instance, that introduces a lot of system, uh, systemic risk because whenever somebody buys a share of that ETF, a little bit of their money goes into all of the companies. And then when they sell that ETF, a little bit of their money comes out of all of those companies. And because of that, the prices are not as efficient as before. There's less active speculators that are that are buying and sell, buying strong companies and selling weak companies. And because of that, when somebody wants to be risk off, they just sell their their ETFs and because of that, the market as a whole can fall pretty pretty heavily because we do have uh, an, a quote-unquote everything bubble which it's like an analogy of that in the stock market. All of the stocks get pumped up a little bit uh, by blind investing of, of passive investors. Yeah, you know, um, I do have a lot of thoughts on that. I actually did an episode not that long ago with JW where we talked kind of about the speculator fallacy um, and this idea that, uh, well, as someone who's who's read, you know, a, a a decent amount of human action at this point and, and quite a lot of other books on Austrian economics. The idea when you, when you can separate yourself from this market that we have, that we've had for the last century uh, in the, in the Western world, um, it, it's, it looks very absurd. If you can detach yourself from the fact that you've grown up in a world with it, where it functions and where people get rich off of it and retire. Um, it, it's very, very absurd when, when you examine it through the lens of traditional classical or Austrian economics, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, and you see signs of this system cracking if you look in the right places. Like, uh, for example, you're talking about the index funds. And, and it, it doesn't make a lot of sense um, that if you just diversify your money across all of these companies that you're going to see a return. Um, it, 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 it's, it's almost fallacious. And uh, you can see some of the cracks of this, you know, looking at the P.E. ratios of some of the most highly valued companies. Uh, in the stock market, it's it's a it's absolutely absurd. It, it doesn't make any logical sense. Um, the amount of money that these companies are uh, profiting every year versus what they're actually valued and and how much capital they hold and all those things, the numbers don't add up. And uh, it gets even worse, you know, when you look at some of the companies that have IPO'd um, and they're completely unprofitable. Um, now, granted, I, I'm not saying that there isn't room for unprofitable companies to exist and they might do what they do very well. Um, Amazon is a really good example of a company that has reinvested pretty much every dollar that it's made for a long, long time into its infrastructure and continued to build an absolute beast of a company that's probably going to take over the world. Um, But um, yeah, I kind of lost where I was going with there. Uh, Why don't you step in? 
Yes. So I, I think that you brought up a lot of interesting topics. And one topic that, that you brought up was uh, pension funds. And they a lot of these you know pension funds, both, I guess, public and private, maybe could you give a description to the listener as to what the, what the problem is that, that we foresee in the future? In regards to? Uh, underfunding of pension funds, um, the retirement crisis that, that may be looming ahead of us. Mm. A lot of people are not funded for retirement. Right, right. Well, and um, part of, but well, and this kind of stems back to the whole, you know, why are there these PE ratios? Why are people investing in these unprofitable companies? And the answer is actually quite simple. And why are people buying negative yielding bonds? Um, the answer is very simple. It's a search for yield, right? We live in a world where money can be printed ad infinitum um, to suit the needs of the bureaucrats who wear the suits and shake the babies and kiss the hands. Uh, that's that's a misaligned incentive. It's um, moral hazard, right? I mean, w- people are searching to, for yield to protect themselves from all of this systemic risk, to pr- protect themselves from this inflation. Um, I think everybody at this point in time would probably like to have a bunker in their backyard full of food and guns and fresh water, <laughs> but uh, they've <laughs> economic reality for them. So they have to find... Um, and, and, in, in other ways too, you know, they might just be trying to make the minimum payments on their credit card. They might just be trying to make it to next week. They might just be trying to put gas in the car. Um, so the search for yield is, is driving a lot of inefficient decisions in the market and not just that, but downright foolish decisions in the market. Um, and, you, and you see it all across the traditional finance. You see it in, in bonds. You see uh, people buying these negative yielding bonds that they have no intentions of holding to maturity. They intend to sell it to another buyer who will come in and want it more than them. Absolutely. And the problem with governments does remind me of the problem of uh, the tragedy of the commons and why we have private ownership of property. The reason why we have private ownership of property is because when there is an owner who owns property, they're incentivized to take care of the property. They're incentivized to maximize its productivity, even if it's uh, more work for them to do so, or they incur more costs in the process. And with an entity like the government, nobody per se owns the government. So what happens is that there is a an incentive problem where politicians are incentivized to get elected by making promises to increase spending and cut taxes. And if they if they try to cut spending, then they're then they're not going to get reelected. And if they increase taxes, then they're not going to get reelected. So there is a feedback loop where the politicians have uh, they have bad incentives. And what happens is that we we see the waste of the system is growing, and it's scary to think this is this is something that they teach in economic in economics courses. The size of the government relative to the GDP of the country, that size as a proportion grows with the size of the of the economy. So the government actually outgrows the economy in uh, in many in many cases. It's a very scary phenomenon. In the case of the United States, we have a public debt which is about uh, 100% or $17 trillion right now. And it's being funded, of course, by these treasuries which are comedically underpriced. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, comedically overpriced. These yields that are being paid for government debt, they don't, they don't really uh, price in a default risk, which although... Theoretically, there shouldn't be a default risk when the issuer can print the, the medium with which they pay back the debt. 
there is a default risk because that's a political reality of the situation. There's also an inflation risk. The inflation premium that's built into a 3% yielding 30-year treasury, that inflation premium cannot be more than 3%, which is, which is very, very funny because you could have five years of inflation that wipe out the real returns from that from that uh, government security over the entire 30-year lifetime of the security, right? Especially when the time comes to repay, and there's going to be no way that we're going to be able to tax to pay for, for instance, Social Security, Medicare for All, universal basic income. This is on the pipeline, and they, due to the nature of politics, they will eventually arise, and they will be justified by modern monetary theory, which is a new, which is an economic theory which essentially justifies the the printing of money, whether the printing is done with greenbacks or whether the printing is done through treasuries, uh, monetary base on the Federal Reserve balance sheet, it's all printing of money. And the printing of money will eventually result in inflation. Right now, we're living in a very low inflation environment. And there will come a time, once again, where we are living in a high inflation environment because I simply refuse to believe that we can uh, that we can increase our printing and uh, a monetary uh, instrument can be printed in printed like crazy and no inflation would result the inflation just has a lag effect it's about a 10-year lag between the time that money enters the m2 money supply and the time that price price inflation actually shows up so the long the long uh, the end game speaking of bunkers in your backyard the end game is that Soon, the debt service on the national debt will uh, will exceed the tax receipts, and therefore, the national debt will begin compounding. And once we have compound interest on the national debt, the only way to get out of it is to increase taxes and, and hurt the economy, or to decrease decrease spending and and ha- uh, face a uh, you know try to take people's entitlements away and see how easy that is to do. Right, and the last mm-hmm. option is print money, you will have an inflation tax, but you know what? The politicians, they're not really hurt by an inflation tax because the inflation tax is a regressive tax, meaning the poor pay a higher percentage of, uh, of the inflation tax than the rich do because the rich can afford uh, real assets, whereas the, the poor, they may not be able to afford real estate or they may not have the social capital to start a, a stock account. So what will happen is their their money is they get paid disproportionately in fixed income, right? People who are retired, people who are in minimum wage, people who have to negotiate with their with their uh, employer, and they have to try to negotiate their sticky wages upwards. What happens is that they get taxed with the implicit tax of inflation, and that's one of the reasons why not only I think that Bitcoin is going to be the best asset financially, but also it's the best asset in terms of justice and social justice you know i i would really like to see more lower income people investing in bitcoin right now we we are in the first network effects where the speculators are stepping in and and eventually eventually what will happen is that bitcoin will be helping people in all levels of the economy and it will be reducing the moral hazard and the transaction costs and it will be disintermediating money and that's why it's so beautiful Hmm. Wow. Lots of, lots of good stuff there. Um, yeah, I, I, I definitely agree with that last part that you said about, uh, trying to bring some of the lower income, um, sex into this market. You know, I'm, I'm 
I'm thinking of the commercials that you see on uh, mainstream news networks in between uh, broadcasts where like advertising trying to get you to buy silver, you know, from, from these companies. And, you know, I think it's only a matter of time before we start to see these commercials targeting very particular audiences um, trying to sell you Bitcoin uh, like they do with, with the silver and the limited edition mint gold coins. Um, and uh, earlier at the beginning of your, of your spiel there, you, you were talking about the concerns of the United States government or any government in particular having its, its spending or just its size in general outpacing or uh, even outgrowing entirely uh, that of a GDP of the nation it represents. And the track that we're set on now, you, know, you talk about the absurdity of money, monetary money modern money theory. You talk about the absurdity mm -hmm. of that. Um, what about a world where just the cost of servicing debt of spending exceeds that of GDP? I mean, that, in an, in that, that is where we're headed, folks. I mean, that, that's going to be a reality probably in my lifetime if this, mm -hmm. if this continues. Um, mm -hmm. But, but right. it's actually... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, uh, you go on and then I'll, I'll jump in. Mm -hmm. Okay. I, well, I was actually going to say, you know... Uh, Looking at this through my Austrian lens, right, where none of it really makes sense to me, I do have to give um, the system a little bit of credit for lasting as long as it has. And maybe it would have worked out well if, um, maybe, not, maybe not well forever, but maybe it would have lasted a little bit longer if we hadn't run into this problem that we're in now, where uh, the, the largest generation in terms of demographic uh, is is approaching retirement age, and when you have fewer people coming into the workforce, paying into the pension funds, paying into the index funds, right? It suddenly starts to look like a Ponzi scheme, um, a pyramid scheme, where the people who are trying to get out at the top with as much as they can, while they can, you're expecting more fresh meat to come in and hold up the bottom, and there just aren't enough bodies, right? There's too much. Um, financial burden, there's too much student loan debt, there's too much inflation, it's too hard for people to start, the wealth gap is widening, and it's going to exacerbate this problem as the baby boomer generation comes of retirement age, begins to draw on these pension funds, begins to cash out entitlements, and like we were saying earlier, you know, it's this search for yield grows ever more desperate as this pool of capital grows smaller and smaller as it has to be doled out to these people to which it is owed. Um, and, and you have fewer and fewer people coming into the workforce, in some cases, like myself, opting entirely out of many of the traditional systems, like the traditional political system or the traditional financial system, and choosing instead to uh, find alternatives like Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. That was very well said. And you know, the, you know what they say, uh, well, I, I made this up, you know what they say about unsustainable systems, right? Is that either they will become sustainable through some reform or they will fail because an unsustainable system by definition or an unsustainable uh, government uh, entitlement fund, social welfare fund, whatever, by definition, if it is unsustainable, it must eventually fail. And we're seeing a lot of these programs. What's, what's even worse than, you know, not doing a social welfare program to begin with is to, to set up a social welfare program that's unsustainable and eventually those people who will become dependent and reliant upon the, so the government handouts and then when it is eventually taken away from them, they will be in a worse position than if it was never created in the first place. Hmm. And the, the retirement crisis is very scary because just to give everyone an idea, 
the baby boomer generation is in is retiring at full speed right now and a lot of them are underfunded for their retirement they they simply do not have enough money so we're going to see an increase in uh, not only calls for social welfare programs but also we're going to see an increase uh, reliance upon those systems and these systems are way too expensive to be paid for with taxes just to give you an idea Right now, the, US, the United States federal government spends about $4 trillion a year, right? And that's out of an economy that's less than $20 trillion in GDP per year. So the government's already spending uh, you know, almost a quarter of the entire output of the United States of America, right? Imagine, imagine trying to increase taxes to close the $1 trillion budget deficit, which right now is the difference between the tax receipts and the uh, and the outlays of the government. I mean that that requires really punitive taxes. And then as those punitive taxes are levied on on uh, people, it actually cramps business. And then now we have to increase the taxes even further to to get the same amount of money that that the congressional budget office was uh, projecting. Mm-hmm. So on one hand, we're seeing the uh, increasing pooling of capital due to uh, government distortions in the market, such as quantitative easing. And what happens is that the capital is flowing to the people who are very low time preference and have a lot of capital, and they're going and buying assets that are yielding, you know, they're, they're reaching for yield, as you pointed out, they're trying to get uh, 7% return on their uh, nominal return on their real estate and 7% return on their stock market investment. Uh, but these but these rates, the the negative rates, I still come from the old from the old guard. I think that negative rates are still there's still a hard limit as to how negative rates can go. I don't think that we will ever see real real rates that are, or well, of course, real rates are already negative due to inflation. But we'll never see nominal rates that are severely negative. And by severely negative, I mean about you know negative five percent. At that point, you have to have major government distortions such as government regulations that force funds to buy certain certain assets as we see in Europe a lot of these institutional funds are forced to match the maturity of their liabilities with the uh, with the maturity of their assets so mm-hmm. we see a lot of people buying buying uh, negative uh, price to yield instruments because they're forced to we also see people buying it to make arbitrage profits you know on currency forward currency rates that's that's a, I'd say, a, a small amount of what, what's causing these negative rates. A lot of other people are forced to hedge to maintain their financial models. They're buying fixed income at, at a price to yield of, of negative. Uh, I, don't, I don't know of any people that are buying these investments. And you're right that it is, you've mentioned earlier, it's the greater fool theory that they're buying these, these, uh, in, these fixed income investments not to hold them to maturity, but rather to try to flip them to the next to the next buyer. And it's one of the biggest bubbles I've ever seen in my entire life. You know, the sovereign debt bubble is ridiculous at this point. It's, and, and then on top of that, we also have the corporate debt bubble, which, it, which is probably going to blow first before the, before the sovereign debt bubble. What's going to happen is that when there's downgrades, a lot of these uh, bonds that are on the edge of being junk bonds versus investment grade bonds, they're going to be downgraded. There's going to be a lot of forced selling of the junk bonds. And if, if some of your listeners want to make money, if you can 
do some due diligence on these uh, when when the downgrade occurs. Maybe you can pick up some of these bonds at a discount because their their prices will be artificially uh, deflated due to the forced selling. But I that's still my my fundamental tenet is that negative rates are not what we're seeing right now is about the extent of how negative rates will get. Do you have an opinion on that? Yeah, I know. I absolutely agree. A hundred percent. And it's baffling, you know, that you even see the negative rates in the, in the corporate sector as well. And, and the only reason that they exist there is because the demand for perceived safety is so high in a market with this much risk that the corporate entities are actually able to issue negative yield uh, and, and people will buy them happily because they're searching for yield. Again, they're searching for safety. Uh, at a certain point, this entire story um, you know, a, as a millennial coming into the workforce, uh, being of the age where I'm starting a family and buying a house and those types of things, this entire picture starts to look like um, uh, something out of Animal Farm, you know, George Orwell's Animal Farm. I, I'm promised the pasture at the end of my days working long and hard on the farm. And if I just work harder, if I just work harder, you know, I'll, I'll get to that pasture one day. Um, but if I, if I don't watch my step, they might send me to the factory and turn me into glue. Mm, yes, and the, the government's always going to make promises that it can't keep. I mean, look at, uh, for instance, when the when the pound was uh, when the the pound was uh, pegged to other European currencies. I think in the eighties, and George Soros and Stan Druckenmiller bet against the bet against the peg holding. They mean the 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 day before or a short while before the government came out and said, no, we're going to defend the pound. And then they, they renege on their word a few days later. The government, whenever the government comes out and tries to calm the markets, it's usually a sign that you should be on the other side of the trade at that point. And the, the one thing that worries me is about your animal farm example is that we're promised a lot of things, but then there's political risk. So let's say, for instance, somebody has been a good saver and you know they bought, they invested in a tax-favorable a tax vehicle like a 401k or whatever and now they thought that they were going to defer their taxes or i guess the the better example is the the roth ira where when you withdraw that you're supposed to withdraw your gains tax-free right well that's not even guaranteed because the government could turn you to glue they could say you know what sorry we did promise you those tax benefits but we're we're uh there's a new uh congress in town and we're gonna we need we need to remove your tax benefits for financial purposes. Or for example, they'll say, oh yeah, we said we wouldn't tax you until you sold your asset, but you know what? Now we're instituting wealth tax. So your unrealized gains, yeah, we're going to need you to pay tax on that as if you sold the asset, even though you've been a good saver and you, and you relied in good faith on the tax code. Sorry, uh, it, it's going to be, it, those benefits are going to be pulled from you. Yeah, I actually had that exact point written down and I was going to talk about it, but you beat me to it. Um, the, yeah, I, I, I've, I've actually had people push back on me on this when I've said, well, you know, what happens if uh, all this money that, because I look at uh, traditional investment, traditional being of, I, I'm 28 years old, uh, looking at traditional investment vehicles, you know, when I'm, when I'm trying to consider what I want to, how I want to allocate my capital for the future, how I want to best um, be a speculator, right? Because we're all speculators at the end of the day. Um, I look at the opportunity cost involved with placing my money into, for me, a very illiquid vehicle um, that promises me certain benefits like uh, tax preferential tax treatment, like a Roth IRA. Um, 
but I've had people push back on me with this idea where I say, well, what happens if at the end of the road, it's, it's not tax free or what if that money just isn't there one day? Um, and they, they, they find that idea appalling and ridiculous. And I, I have to sympathize with them because I find it appalling and ridiculous too, but I think spend a lot of time thinking about these things. And I think that the risk is there for that. Um, and it, and it's not just pensions and entitlements, you know, what about savings accounts? Um, I think we all, probably most of the people listening to this know some of the story of the history of banking and reserve ratios and the, the 1930 banking crisis and all the things that led up to the banking system that we have today and the creation of the Federal Reserve in 1913 and how all those factors lay together um, to create a banking system that relies very heavily on, on debt and on collateralized debt and on uh, very, very liberal... Co- uh, reserve ratios. And in 1930s, uh, they created the FDIC, which was there to federally insure funds that were placed within savings accounts. And at the time, it was a very small amount. I think it was only a couple thousand dollars. And today, it's, uh, I believe, 250000 unless it's changed. Um, yeah. FDIC is just as broke as any other of these government entitlement programs. And one day, you might go to take your money out of your bank account and find out it's not there because it's already been lent out to someone else. Uh, And this is often a very difficult thing to explain to someone who doesn't understand the machinations of the financial system because in their mind, right, every time they open up their banking app, their money's right there. Every time they write a check, their money's right there. Every time they swipe their card, their money's right there. So what do you mean it's not my money? Mm -hmm. That's right. And uh, sometimes it takes a financial incentive such as having some Bitcoin before people really start opening their minds to the to the traditional system and being able to compare and contrast the two. Uh, you spoke about the different asset classes uh, upon which we can allocate our capital. And I, I want to run through them really quickly because you have real estate, which is real estate is uh, is, you know, time honored. It's it's a real asset. It, there's a lot of benefits to it. For instance, it could be productive. It could be producing, uh, for instance, it could be yielding rent. And it's also tax tax speaking. It's a very uh, uh, privileged investment class in the United States. You can get depreciation on your purchase price, uh, which gives you tax deductions while you own the property. And then you can also uh, get tax deductions for the interest on the loan used to lever up and purchase the real estate. And lastly, when, when you want to sell, you can 1031 exchange into another piece of real estate, which means the government will allow you to sell the real estate, not pay tax on your gain, simply defer your gain into a new piece of property. So it's as if tax speaking, you're in the same position as before, except you own a different piece of real estate. Now, just so everybody knows, Around the time of the Bcash hard fork, there was a similar rule that was much more strict for personal property, such as Bitcoin and Bcash. So um, you might be able to apply for the 1031 uh, exemption in that case. is not ta- It is not legal advice, of course, but no longer, no longer does that private property 1031 exchange exist anymore. My concern with the 1031 exchange is that that is a tax benefit which could be cut in the future. And if you cut a tax benefit to an asset class like real estate, you have a major uh, price price hit that go that uh, the government action takes on the asset. For instance, in California, we just had some rent controls passed by the state legislature, and at this point, you know, whenever you pass a regulation onto onto an asset, the what happens is that the asset owner takes a hit, and the and the regulatory risk gets uh, actualized and it gets priced in, and that could happen with real estate. For instance, if 
if Congress completely eliminates the home interest mortgage deduction, which allows a homeowner to deduct interest on the on the loan uh, of their home, right, that they reside in, that that could, uh, some people estimate that could shave off one third of the value of house prices in the United States. Mm-hmm. So real estate does have, it is subject to regulatory risk and capital gains treatment might go by the wayside and as the populist movements uh, uh, rise on the on the left and what might happen is that you might see right now people who get preferential capital gains tax uh, rates because the idea is that, well, they already paid income tax on the money that they earned to buy those capital assets, and those capital assets have a price appreciation due to inflation, and the capital owner has to pay uh, income tax on the appreciation that was not a real appreciation, it was only a nominal appreciation, and there's a few other a few other justifications for the capital gains tax, but boy, I mean, don't expect capital gains treatment to, to last forever. That's a pretty good deal at this point. Uh, do you have any thoughts on real estate? Yeah, um, you know, I, I think you hit on a lot of the good points. Um, I, we could touch on the whole Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac piece, you know, from 2008, which is even worse now than it was then. Um, it's pretty much just the nonsense continues because when you get into these types of circumstances, uh, malinvestment is what I call it, and there's no liquidation or the liquidation is postponed, um, you're just delaying an inevitability, right? Because in the case of malinvestment, which is uh, very much the case in, in the United States real estate market and actually in a lot of real estate markets all over the world, because again, it's the same problem. People are searching for yield. They're fleeing to um, they're fleeing to some sort of safety because they can't stay in their native currencies uh, because every currency on the globe to some degree or another is inflationary um, with, with maybe the exception of the Japanese yen in, in certain recent circumstances. But um, <laughs> yeah, I, I think yeah. That you made some really good points there. And I also have seen like on Twitter, for example, um, some of the more hardcore uh, socialists' minds are, are advocating even for taxes on unrealized gains, which is, is actually an extremely scary thought because that that thought isn't. Uh, it's basically just another income tax because they're they're taking what you have. Because if, if a gains are unrealized, then they're taking from what you have elsewhere. Yes, the the legal academia has come up with uh, uh, with a pretty well reasoned intellectual justification for taxing unrealized gains. And it already occurs in some markets. For instance, in commodities trading, a lot of uh, commodity uh, traders have to mark to market each day, which means that ex- exactly what we were saying, they, they're they paying taxes on their unrealized gains every day uh, when they mark to market. Uh, regarding the... And so it, eventually it may come. Eventually what would have to happen is there would have to be an act of Congress modifying the tax code and it would have to be upheld by the courts. And of course, it will be challenged in the courts, but the courts uh, uh, have kind of mentioned before that they might be oh, they might be okay with the idea, um, not to spread too much FUD, but there's also a, a possibility that maybe there would be a federal uh, property tax. Right now, most property taxes are state taxes, and a property tax is a tax, not on an unrealized gain, but it's a tax on property that's simply owned. So if you own property, you owe this tax. And one problem with owing taxes when there's no transaction is that let's assume that the property, uh, that you have to liquidate the property to pay for the property tax. At that point, that's 
that's kind of unfair to force property owners to liquidate their property just to pay rent to the state. And remember, property tax is rent that you owe on property that you supposedly own yourself, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Going to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, that was a government bailout. And for years, people thought, well, it's not guaranteed in law that the government's insuring us and and, uh, guaranteeing our our transactions here with, with Fannie Mae. But you know what? Uh, it's kind of implicit because they're a government-created entity. And, and then when the time came for a bailout, the political pressures were immense. And, if, you know, I don't blame the government bureaucrats for, for doing bailouts in those situations. I don't, I don't blame them for buying toxic mortgage-backed securities. And in the future, the Fed will probably buy gover- uh, student loans that are, that are toxic and and then they'll foray into uh, bailing out pension funds, bailing out localities, buying their assets. And it, I don't blame them because that, that's the moral hazard that they, that we have, uh, that they have been given. And that's, that is, it, it creates even more malinvestment in the future because once you bail out a, a bank, now all of a sudden the implicit guarantee becomes stronger. And the next time around, the government uh, pressures to bail out these companies is going to be even more immense. And instead of the capital being redistributed to the to the more efficient uh, allocators of capital, instead it it continues to be employed in an inefficient manner. And according to Austrian theory, these these uh, dislocations are becoming worse and worse over time, and there will eventually be uh, a, a forced cleansing of the system. Hmm. Yeah, uh, it, you certainly notice the scale of these inefficiencies growing so large, right? Infiltrating so many aspects of our life and our society. You see it in, in a great many things, um, the, this perpetual malinvestment. Um, and, and that has to affect, it, it affects you more directly than, than just in the, the things that we're talking about, like in your, the taxes that you pay or in um, how big of a house you can afford. It, it affects you in the, the types of goods and services that you can receive. Uh, if, if businesses are rewarded financially more so for operating under a certain premise, which doesn't, which doesn't directly relate to meeting the demands of uh, consumers and some other uh, occultic principle uh, or maybe knowing the right people, operating in the right circles, giving the right people the right money, kickbacks, all those types of things uh, it creates these feedback loops in markets uh, that, that magnifies these inefficiencies and ultimately hurts the consumer's ability to meet their needs, whether that be in banking services or in food service or in uh, home repair or in car repair. Um, there's a whole host of ways it affects your daily life. You're right. And according to Austrian economics, the interest rate is supposed to reflect society's time preference as a whole. Now, how we could have such low interest rates and living in such a high time preference society, maybe it's because the people who have the money to invest are low time preference and the consumers are high time preference, so they don't have as much money to invest. But that being said, according to Austrian theory, you're right. Our goods and services are being affected by the by the government intervention and adjusting the interest rates so arbitrarily is shifting production into the future and then back to the past, Intr- into the future and then uh, more immediately. And what happens is, for instance, let's say the government lowers the interest rate. And when I say lower the interest rate, I mean the, the, the government in its capacity as a market actor 
intervenes in the market and the market equilibrium uh, interest rate lowers, right? The government doesn't just come out and pull, pull the lever, right? They're, they're only a market actor. So let's say the government arbitrarily lowers interest rates. The Federal Reserve comes out tomorrow and they announce their intention to cut rates to zero, right? What will happen is the markets will adjust accordingly, but now all of a sudden, more production will be shifted to the future because projects that were not otherwise, and, and you know this, and the Austrians, uh, I'm just repeating Austrian theory at this point, so I didn't come up with this myself. What happens is that the production will shift into the future and producers will start producing goods that take longer to produce, which will cause a shortage of goods in the more near term. And because of that, we will experience more inflation in the near term less long-term projects will be able to be uh, finished. And because of that, there will be a loss that accompanies the, the government intervention. And the scary thing that Austrian economics teaches us is that you can't have a government, a binding government intervention in the markets unless it is not the free market equilibrium. Uh, so whenever the government intervenes, it is shifting the, it is shifting the equilibrium away from the free market efficient result causing distortions and that's what we're seeing right now is distortions on on another level that have never been seen before hmm. yeah uh real quick i do really appreciate your your caveat there about how these these aren't really our thoughts um we're standing on the shoulders of giants here but what what this bitcoin community has done so well is take uh lots of some of the brightest thoughts from many different uh, many different schools of thought uh, and bring them all to bear on Bitcoin and, and sort of find out how this thing fits into this, this paradigm that we're living in. Um, and, and what I've found most profound about Bitcoin in all of this research that I've done is this topic that we're on now, this idea of economic calculation and the, the skewed nature of, um, you know, because there's lots of other effects of that Bitcoin achieves or that that Bitcoin operates under certain assumptions that are that are beneficial, and they're all things that we love to champion around, like inflation uh, and store of value, and uh, but all of them sort of fit together to create this complete picture of economic calculation. And and markets, the the more efficiently markets can function, the better off all of us are uh, in our daily life, right? Because we're merely eking out existence uh, on this earth on a day to day basis. We're fighting against uh, the the cruelty of nature um and and it, it's only in the modern era and only very very recently when technology has improved our lives so exponentially that we can forget this principle uh that we all live on a day-to-day -day basis uh, struggling against the elements uh and and the efficiency of economic calculation is our greatest ally Mm -hmm. That's right. How how do you think that Bitcoin fits into our current system? And do you have any predictions about uh, its future in the economy? Yeah. Um, well, you know, part of me wants to every whenever I get asked questions like this, part of me wants to say, you know, I don't know. I mean, because I, I really don't like nothing. This has never happened before. Um, what, there's so many things are going on around us right now that are unprecedented. Um, and, and Bitcoin has got to be one of the biggest. But when I look at this all through the Austrian lens and I, I have these conversations with extremely smart people like yourself and we talk back and forth, it just seems inevitable. It just seems inevitable like there has to be some big reset and that 
in that process, Bitcoin will emerge uh, as as the tool of economic calculation, as the store of value, as the medium of exchange, because it's most well suited to do so in circumstances um, that are not affected by any extraneous variables. Mm-hmm. That's right. Uh, you know, I, I'm happy at this point that Bitcoin has prospered uh, without severely disrupting the legacy system. Of course, uh, even even if the Austrian theory says that the system is going to eventually have a day of reckoning, I, as a human, I hope that yeah, the least you know that people feel the least amount of pain possible. If, if Bitcoin, uh, you know, that being said, Bitcoin is going to do what Bitcoin is going to do. We can't control it. So whether or not you know whatever our opinions are, you're right that it reality is going to unfold, and uh, hard money is going to do what hard money does in society. That's uh, shout out to uh, Bitstein for that. And I, I think that the coolest thing about Bitcoin is that the number does go up. And then when the number does go up, it goes up a lot. And this is something that is, is so fun. And it's something that doesn't really exist in these other assets. Like for instance, if, I, if you bought the S&P 500, uh, let's say it's at 3000 right now, you buy into the S&P 500, what's, what's the like optimistic 10-year uh, re- uh, projection on what the S&P 500 can do? Um, you know, I don't, I don't know the answer to that. Let's let's assume that the S and P five hundred. I'm just going to make something up. Let's assume that it you know doubles, triples, or quadruples from here, right? Mm-hmm. To me, as a Bitcoiner, that doesn't you know get me out of bed in the morning. I, I'm at the point now where, and of course, the beautiful thing about Bitcoin is that it gets even the people with the highest time preference to turn into savers, which is awesome because they you get an interest that you can't get anywhere else in society, right? And for me as a Bitcoiner, I'm looking for a 10x return at least, right? Bitcoin, if Bitcoin does 100x in the next five years, I would not even bat an eye. I would think that that's, yeah, that's pretty normal. Like that's what we all expected, right? Mm-hmm. And to see it happening, I, I think one thing that surprised me earlier this year was to see all of the uncertainty occurring in the trade war, uh, the, the Chinese devaluation and the Hong Kong protests, and to see the Bitcoin price going up in response to that political uncertainty and going up with gold, uh, I thought that that was very interesting to have to be able to predict, you know, very somberly. Oh yes, Bitcoin will will triple, right? But then to see it actually happen and to see the the macroeconomic landscape converging on Bitcoin, I mean, it's truly, uh, truly awe and and uh, humbling. It's it's humbling to say the least. Mm. Yeah, you almost don't want to be right about this. Um. Mm-hmm. But you kind of just you keep playing back over and over in your head um, all these other possibilities like, well, you know, but, it, you know, I, I think we've done a pretty good job of, of exposing the cracks and the foundations here um, with this conversation today. And to me, Bitcoin is, you know, I was I was very cynical about the world until I found Bitcoin and, and really started to understand it. Um, but now I think. You know, uh, you know, it's like you said, I, I hope that it's as painless as possible for the vast majority of people. But based on my understandings of history, um, shifts in major shifts in um, society tend not to be so. Mm. I, I, it, but it does give me hope. Bitcoin does give me hope that um, 
there there's at least a light at the end of the tunnel maybe for my kids i don't I, that might sound a little bit mm-hmm. uh a little bit dark but well i mean it's it's true it's a good point hopefully it is a peaceful revolution like what uh, nick carter is uh projecting uh, so I, I have uh, another question for you. Do you think that we just experienced a blow-off top in uh, government debt? And just for the for the listeners' reference, summer of 2019. Uh, do you do you have any opinions on that? In in terms of government debt, yes. Uh, for instance, the the total uh, market cap of negative price to yield sovereign debt. It reached about a week or two ago. It reached about seventeen trillion dollars in total market cap, and now I think we're back down below fifteen trillion because we've seen a a big uh, a big decline in fi- in fixed income uh, over the past week or so. Mm. so. I think that we've got a lot more to go. Um, I don't think that this train is going to stop until the vast majority of these these countries that are issuing their own currencies, issuing their own debt, paying off that debt with the currencies that they issue. Um, I, I think that this has to liquidate first um, fully. And I don't see that happening until um, the vast majority of the issuers, or at least like the most major issuers, are all in as deep as they can get. Um, and I don't think that we're quite there yet. You know, it could happen tomorrow. I could crow on that um because there's there's all of these events that you can't predict you know just like the oil thing that we were talking about when we first started speaking um there's all these events that you can't predict and there's so much risk right now in so many places um but i do think that there's still room for this thing to go and and as far as whether or not i think it's the blow off top you know who knows um I, I think it's only going to continue to accelerate um, just based on my understanding of the trends and, you know, looking at the inefficiencies of extremely large bureaucratic organizations and how they operate. Like if you look at some of the inefficiencies of some of the departments that work for the U S government um, and the way that they allocate resources and the way that they utilize manpower uh, and the way that they procure funding, um, they're they're so wholly inefficient that they can only continue to grow more inefficient if they uh, get bigger. Uh, and if they get smaller, then that capital is likely just going to go somewhere else and probably somewhere less useful. So I, I only see it getting worse. Mm-hmm. That's right. And there's very few things in investing that are for sure. But one thing is for sure that, that we will see quantitative easing again. Oh, I yeah. think it's yeah. it's politically way too easy to uh, to do. I mean, don't get me wrong. There were there were pushbacks during the last financial crisis, but the fact that uh, the Fed the Fed uh, Reserve people are the Federal Reserve uh, leaders are you know largely insulated from the political processes and the fact that they can uh, print money so easily to to buy these assets off the open market. It is a very a very politically easy thing to do. Um, uh, some people say that that's really good for Bitcoin, and I'm inten- uh, I'm inclined to agree with them. I think that anything that devalues whatever Bitcoin is priced in, it's it's good for Bitcoin because that you're going to get more dollars for your Bitcoin if those dollars are weaker dollars, then you're going to then for sure the for sure the number is going to go up, right? Mm-hmm. And then as more and more people, oh by the way, backed is uh, uh, the futures contract that's Bitcoin settled is going to debut this month, which is also awesome to see 
the infrastructure being built out for for Bitcoin and to see it being financialized before our eyes. So it's all interwoven. It's, these things are all related. Yeah, uh, interesting perspective from me on the, the QE piece. You know, I don't know how old you are, but um, I, I think back to when the 2008 financial crisis happened and I was still in high school. Um, and at that age, you know, you don't have very formed opinions on the world you don't you don't understand most things you think you do but you you don't understand most things and even now you know at my age i feel like i'm slowly starting to get a much better grasp on the world and how it works and many of its intricacies uh, but for me you know the majority of the world that i can remember through the lens of my adult eyes um qe is normal qe is just a part of um just a part of everyday life and uh, i think you know, it only takes a generation to make something normal because my kids are never going to live in a world that didn't have Kiwi. Well, you know, unless this thing reaches sublimation and, and eventually evaporates, but um, it, it's only a matter of time. Mm -hmm. Like you said, the ECB just very recently said that they were going to start Kiwi again. Uh, and, and this is on the tail end of almost a decade's worth of Kiwi and, and already you know, like you said earlier, nominal negative inflation, which a lot of people don't real are not nominal negative uh, yielding debt, which a lot of people don't realize, and I didn't realize until recently, until I was looking into this, that uh, we've been negatively yielding, nominally speaking, on debt in the United States for the pretty much since two thousand eight. Um, so the idea of going negative um, just outright is is not that far fetched. Mm -hmm. Yes, and. Uh, speaking of um, the central banks intervening, you know, I, to me, as, a, as an Austrian and as a, an observer of the economy, I, I have a degree in economics. And, you know, when they were teaching us about intre negative interest rates, I'm about the same age as you. They taught us, oh, negative interest rates are impossible, right? Unless, unless you just need to, a few basis points for the cost of having an armed guard guard the cash, right? You're, you're not going to see negative interest rates. And now, now we have to come up with new economic theories because in some places the negative interest rates are reaching, you know, negative 50, negative 60 basis points, like in Germany and Japan. And uh, that uh, just for the listeners, so they know negative 50 basis points is negative 0.5%. Um, and, you know, I, I read the Wall Street Journal every day. I really enjoy that. Uh, I, I do have a uh, a sympathy for the for the mainstream conservative economic view, and I think that the Wall Street Journal makes a lot of uh, very good points. If your if your listeners are interested in learning more, I definitely recommend you pick up a copy and uh, and check it out. Uh, so we'll we'll see what happens. The market is sending us very strong signals. The markets are are a very beautiful phenomenon, and they're sending us very very strong signals from very deep markets. The yield curve is is uh, has a contorted shape. You know the the uh, uh, the VIX is uh, abnormally low. The VIX index, the volatility index, the uh, algorithmic and and high frequency traders introduce a lot of uh, a lot of systemic risk into the system, and liquidity vanishes. It vanishes, and it's very scary to see. The liquidity recede from certain markets when when it's needed most. So if we do see uh, a downturn at this point, we know what the monetary authorities are going to do. Uh, we know that the government deficit is going to widen, and we know that credit spreads are going to widen for sure. 
But other than that, it's really fun to, to live in the uncertainty and to just witness it unfolding before our eyes every day. It is very exciting. Um, you know, you, you mentioned the uh, getting your degree in economics and being taught that uh, negative interest was an impossibility. You know, the whole circumstance um, reminds me of the the emperor who has no clothes. You know, it's almost like for the longest time now, we've ex- it's been exposed that the emperor has no clothes, but uh, these economic theories are like the servants telling the emperor how beautiful his new outfit looks. Um, when we're all fully aware that the emperor is completely naked and, and that this, it's only a matter of time before uh, he realizes it himself. Uh, but, but many are content to uh, praise his spectacular tastes in wardrobe. Uh, it's a great, that's a great parable. I really like that one. Uh, since, since we're, giving parables one that i like from the bible which uh, you're probably more familiar with than i am is when jesus goes to the market and he uh, goes to the to the temple and he's throwing uh the the merchants tables over and he's he's uh very upset that they were monetizing uh that they were they were monetizing the temple um but i you know i i used that example last week but i forgot what the i forgot what the moral of the story was so <laughs> it's, just well, a, it's just an interesting story. Actually, since you brought that up, um, right after that passage, there's a, a another story, and and well, it, it reads like a different story because of the way they've they've translated the Bible and written it out. Um, but right after that, he goes outside and he see well, maybe not outside. He goes to the temple and he sees a, a very poor woman take her last two pennies and give them to the church. And then immediately after that, um, he turns to his disciples and his disciples say, "Oh." God, isn't this temple just absolutely beautiful? Look at how magnificent it is. Um, you know, like, look at its splendor. Like, isn't this an amazing accomplishment? And he basically says, I tell you the truth, all of this will fall to the ground. Like, he, he sees this woman, you know, give, give it, basically, it's malinvestment, right? She can't even afford to feed herself. Um, but she's giving the last of what she has to this organization that already has so much that it doesn't need. And he sees this happen and he says, well, this is, this is evil. Like, why would, why would you be happy about this? And woe to the people who um, perpetuate it. Uh, and it's funny because that story is often used in churches to, that they spin it to try to convince the um, churchgoers that it's actually a story of uh, tithing, that Jesus was, um, Say that the, the disciples were praising how virtuous this woman is and we should seek to emulate her. But if you read the story very carefully and you read it in the context of him uh, throwing over the tables with the money changers, you quickly realize that he's actually saying, oh, the futility of this, this system. Mm. Oh, it's very interesting. Though, I guess the only difference between that parable and the government is that the government will force you to give your last two pennies over. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And it was probably pretty simple back then, too. You probably thought you didn't have much choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. So uh, do you have any, uh, any last thoughts? Uh, and th- by the way, thank you for having me on the podcast again. I, I thoroughly enjoy it and I enjoy talking to you very much. Oh, I love this. I think this was my favorite episode so far. Nice. The, my last word is just that, you know, a lot of, we brought up a lot of problems in, in this uh, podcast and I just want to let everyone know to not worry because Bitcoin fixes this. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. And with, we'll end it with the meme, guys. Um, yeah, don't forget to tech, check out uh, Bitcoin Lawyer on Twitter and hit us up if you guys like this episode and we will happily discuss more in, in the feeds. Yes, and uh, my Twitter handle is at Bitcoin underscore lobby. So 
line on the bottom, L-O-B-B-Y, and I got a little UASF tag next to my name. All right. All right, guys. Welcome back. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this conversation that I had with Bitcoin Lawyer. Super sharp guy. Really fun to talk to. Make sure you go and follow him on Twitter and hit him up with all of your questions about law and Bitcoin and talk shop with him. And Stefan Levera and Marty Bent, I see you guys picking this dude up in the near future. If you guys have been listening to the Bitcoin Echo Chamber and you've been enjoying the show, I encourage you to go find all of our episodes at BitcoinEchoChamber.com or you can find us on pretty much any of your favorite podcasting services like iTunes or Spotify or Overcast. If you find yourself keep coming back, Give me a subscribe or a couple thumbs up or some stars on whatever platform you're listening to. really goes a long way to help me grow the platform, help get more exposure, which helps me get better guests on the show. And if you guys want to get in contact with me, you can find me on Twitter at HeavilyArmedC. That's the letter C. My DMs are always open, or you can just hit me up in open chat. Or you can send me an email at BitcoinEchoChamber at gmail.com. That's for any questions or comments you might have or if you want to reach out about sponsorships. And speaking of sponsorships, make sure you guys all go check out Bitcoin-only.com for all the best resources on Bitcoin-only focused products, services, podcasts, literature, etc. It's absolutely one of the best resources that I've come across for finding Bitcoin-only and Bitcoin-focused products in the space without having to worry about being exposed to any noise that will show you altcoins or referral links or anything like that. This is a 100% no-nonsense product, great place to find information, great place to send newbies who are looking for more information about Bitcoin, pretty much your best one-stop shop. All right, guys, that's all I got for this one. I'm going to go get some sleep, and I will hopefully see you again very soon. Yeah, I'm a clown. Huh. Uh.